Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, April 17th, 2022, and this is show number 884. Well, I don't know whether you're going to have gotten this show on time or not. I'm having quite a little difficulty with Libsyn, which is where I store the audio files. I can't post Chit Chat Across the Pond right now because it's never arriving at the right location when I FTP it up to Libsyn. So there's a good chance you're not hearing this on Sunday night or Monday morning. I don't know when you're going to get this. Hopefully, maybe a miracle occurs in sometime between when I started recording this and when I finished, it will actually start working. Well, I was positively thrilled last week to be the subject of David Sparks and Stephen Hackett's interrogation on the Mac Power users. I've known David for a hundred years or so, but I'd never really gotten to know Stephen until this week when I got to be on Mac Power users. They asked me about everything in my tech background, so we start at the 512K Mac and we move forward from there. We talk a bit about the early days of podcasting, my latest Mac gear, why I can't figure out what to do with the iPad mini, my current obsession with making diagrams using diagrams.net, the place in my life for the Apple Pencil, the fun I'm having with coding, how rogue amoeba tools are critical to my workflow, why learning about assistive tech is so fun, how Ulysses paired with Mars Edit is how I write for Podfeet, why I'm bullish on Folga to create tutorials, and why I like telegramming for telegram for messaging. I had a great time with David and Stephen. I hope you'll ha- go have a listen to Mac Power Users number 635 in your podcatcher of choice, or of course, there's a link in the show notes. Well, this week, in theory, we have two chit-chats across the pod. That is if I can get the second one posted. But the first one is uh, a really super fun one. While Steve and I were in Phoenix visiting Steve's sister, we made a trip out to meet the awesome Bodie Grimm, host of the Kilowatt podcast at 918digital.com. Bodie's show is all about electric vehicles, self-driving, renewable energy, and batteries. You can imagine it would be impossible for a podcast to not break out when two podcasters meet up like this. We decided to create this as a crossover episode that we would both post. Now, I haven't listened to Bodie's intro yet, but I'm willing to bet he starts with telling his audience they should not listen on his show. They should subscribe to mine instead. That's just the kind of guy he is. I'm not that generous. Stay here, listen to my channel, and then when you're done, you're allowed to go subscribe to the Kilowatt Podcast. Anyway, we talk about all kinds of things in this episode. I explain how weird it was for Steve and me to drive an internal combustion engine ice car after two years of EV driving. But that wasn't the weirdest thing we did. Right before recording, Bodie let us ride order a Waymo self-driving car to take us to Trader Joe's. So, of course, we had to talk about how crazy it was to be in a moving car with no driver in the car. Steve and I are considering getting batteries to go with our solar system, and Bodie knows a lot about this subject, so I tried to get him to interpret the crazy language we were given on how to deal with Tesla batteries during a power outage. He does not succeed at interpreting this any better than we did. I do have to say, we're pretty sure that the instructions we've been given are wrong, so don't panic about Tesla batteries when you hear what we talk about. Bodhi is a positively fabulous guy. He's smart, he's knowledgeable, and he's got this subtle and yet completely goofy sense of humor that just tickles me to death. Be sure to check out the Kilowatt podcast in your podcatcher of choice after listening to Chit Chat Across the Pond number 723. If I am successful in posting the second Chit Chat Across the Pond, which is going to be a programming by stealth with Bart Bouchatz, we have one more thing to learn as we gear up to actually starting writing modern code for Bart's HSXK PassWD tool. The last piece of our toolkit is a bundler. 
In this installment, Bart teaches us what problems bundlers solve, and he explains why he chose the bundler Webpack for this project. After learning about Webpack, Bart takes us through a worked example bundling the joiner module we've been working on through this part of the series. When we're done, we'll have an ES6 bundle and a universal module definition, UMD, bundle to cover both modern and more legacy needs. In this episode, you'll hear me say that, that, that in the exercise it hit errors, but I want you to know that after the show, we diagnosed the problem in the show notes and Bart was able to fix them, so have no worries about that part when I'm kind of concerned saying, hey, it doesn't work, Bart, it will work for you. You can, as always, find Bart's fabulous show notes tutorial for this installment at pbs.bartificer.net, and you can find Programming by Stealth in your podcatcher of choice. I am not a big fan of crowdfunded projects, but once in a while, I still fall for the idea. At CES in January of 2019, we met with a company called Ampere, who were working on a three-way wireless charger for iPhone, Apple Watch, and AirPods. It was crowdfunded, but by the time we met with Ampere, they were already shipping the charger to backers, so I decided to back the device. In just two months, I got the hardware, and I did a review for the NoSellaCast back then in 2019. Fast forward to October of 2020 when I attended a virtual PepCon event after in-person CES was canceled. Ampere was at virtual PepCon, so I thought I'd stop by to see what they were excited about next. Ampere was showing off a device they call ShowerPower, a hydro-powered Bluetooth speaker. They explained that the flow of your shower water would actually charge the battery that powers the speaker so you'd never need to plug it in to charge it, and you'd have a speaker in the shower. It looked pretty nifty, and as I said in my blog post from 23 October 2020, I was sorely tempted to back the Kickstarter that was starting in just five days' time. My logic in doing it was that A, I had backed this company once before and gotten the product in just two months, and B, they said they'd be delivering by Christmas, again, just two months away. I convinced myself that backing Ampere in a crowdfunded campaign was just as good as buying from a real store. But as Christmas approached... I had no shower power to give to Steve for Christmas. Instead, I gave him a wrapped box that only contained a poorly printed photo of shower power along with the email showing I'd backed the project on day one. Over the past year and a half, I've gotten regular emails from Ampere telling me about their progress. I learned about design changes, materials changes, challenges in the mechanics, and more. While the last couple of years have been a strain for all companies everywhere, I think this is what being part of a good crowdfunded project is actually all about. You feel like you're part of a community as you cheer them on for the sidelines, the entire time grumbling under your breath that you really do just want the darn product. Now I'm going to try to convince myself to remember this experience the next time I get tempted by a crowdfunded project, but I make no guarantees I won't fall for it again. With all this preamble, guess what? We got our shower power on March 15th, just 18 months after I placed the order. Now that you've learned the lesson about crowdfunding, let's have some fun talking about shower power. The good news is, is that we really like it. Let's first talk about the design and installation. Shower power is a cylinder that goes between your shower head and the end of the pipe to which the shower head normally connects. You simply turn the shower head counterclockwise to unscrew it from the pipe. Maybe you all knew it was that easy to take a shower head off, but I actually did not know that. I always figured it required some sort of mysterious plumber sorcery. Once the shower head is removed, you screw the shower power cylinder onto the pipe, and then you screw the shower head into the shower power. Depending on your shower head, you might need an adapter, but they include them in the packaging. In a brilliant move, Ampere put a sticker on one end of the cylinder that says input to make sure you put it on in the right direction. 
The shower power has an impeller on the inside, which is like a propeller, but it's fully encased, like what you would have on a jet ski. There's no blades going around that's going to, you know, tear you up if you're in underwater near a jet ski. The water pressure turns the impeller, which generates energy to charge the battery. So far, we only have the energy-generating portion of the shower power attached. The speaker itself is called a droplet. Get it? Water droplet? (laughs) I thought it was cute. The droplet connects perpendicular to shower power, forming a T intersection. It connects using what's called a bayonet mount. You may not know that term, but I'm sure you've seen one before. If you've ever connected a camera lens to a big girl camera, that's a bayonet mount. You just push in and turn a few degrees, and it locks into place. The droplet speaker is around 3 inches in diameter and 4 inches long, and in addition to being charged by by shower power, its 1800 milliamp hour battery can also be charged via USB-C. It's completely waterproof, (laughs) duh, it supports Bluetooth 5.1 and has a max sound level of 85 dBc. When you look at the mount for the droplet, you may not believe it's waterproof, even though it obviously must be. You can see metal connectors that are part of the press fit of droplet into shower power, but don't be afraid to get it wet. When you turn shower power on, after a few seconds, you'll hear a classic water droplet sound that tells you your droplet now has power. On the end of droplet, it has buttons for power, play pause, up and down volume, and one that I think means shuffle your music, but since I don't do music, I don't know what that button actually does for sure. Steve and I primarily listen to podcasts, and we've definitely wanted to be able to listen to them in the shower. Shower Power's droplet delivers pretty good audio, considering it's in the shower. We do find that deep voices in spoken podcasts are a bit muddled for our tastes, but I didn't expect super high fidelity. I'll get back to the sound quality in a moment. While I was waiting for a year and a half for the shower power to be delivered, they made an offer to backers to send an additional droplet along. I forget how much I paid for it. It might have been as much as $40, or they might have given it to me. I, I, I honestly don't remember. Having a second droplet has turned out to make the shower power much more useful than it would have been otherwise. You see, it's been a very long time since we've used traditional Bluetooth speakers, and we forgot how incredibly annoying it is to connect more than one phone to the same device. For the few, first few days, Steve and I were sharing the one droplet connected to the shower head, and it was a giant Bluetooth mess. If one of us forgot to disconnect after leaving the shower, the second phone simply could not connect. It reminded me of the old days when Steve and I had Bluetooth connectivity in our Acura cars. It was so frustrating that we finally decided each of us would be wireless in our own cars, but wired in the opposite person's car. So if I got in Steve's car, I would plug in by a wire. When he got into my car, he would plug in with a wire. That way we were never sharing it within one Bluetooth setting. I'm not sure why Bluetooth connectivity in our Teslas does not cause this aggravation at all, but with a touch of a button, our phones connect easily to either car. I said I was lucky I got the extra droplet speaker because our solution to the Bluetooth mess was one that became was because one became mine and one became Steve's. At first, we envisioned that we would physically disconnect the droplets when we got out of the shower and swap them. But then we came up with a much easier idea. Steve gets to use the droplet that's connected to the shower since it was his Christmas present from two years ago, but I never connect mine to the shower. Instead, I simply used normal USB-C charging rather than that nifty hydroelectric power that is the point of the whole thing. According to the specifications at Ampere, Steve's droplet will get endless sound as long as the water's running. On battery power alone, my droplet is supposed to get 16 hours of sound playback on a charge. 
I charged it fully when I first got it. I've used it over the last, I don't know, it's been three or four weeks since we got it, and I haven't had to recharge it yet. I haven't done any scientific testing of the playback time, but so far I'm quite pleased with how long the battery lasts. The one thing Droplet is missing is a charge level indicator, but since the primary usage for Droplet is to be attached to hydroelectric power, I understand why that was never added. Now, when I first put my droplet in the shower, I put it on a little shelf, and it was really hard to understand my podcast, that muddled audio I was talking about. I started moving it around, and I discovered that if I put it on the shower caddy right in front of me, the sound was a lot better. I didn't experience those muddled lower tones that I had experienced before. Steve has taken to removing the shower power from the shower head and placing it on the shower caddy as well for better sound. We suspect it has to do with how ours is oriented when installed. It's pointed back and into a corner. We tried rotating the whole thing around, as shown in, in the photos, which would probably help, but we found it leaked in that location. Now, they do provide some washer shims to fix this problem, but we've gotten lazy since we had a workaround, so we haven't actually fixed that yet. Now, you're going to laugh at this next benefit I discovered. It is incredibly useful to be able to carry a speaker around anywhere you like. I know I'm acting like I made fire here, but I've been using the tethered HomePod speakers for so long, I forgot what a delight it is to be able to just move a speaker from room to room. So not only do I have my podcast playing in the shower, but when I walk into the bedroom, I can carry the podcast with me. I mean, Captain Obvious here, but it delights me, and I'm going to enjoy it. If I had to ask for one more thing on the droplet, it would be a better way to know whether the device is on or off. If you press the power button, it turns blue, and it makes the droplet sound but then the blue light doesn't stay on as an indicator that it's powered up. It makes a droplet-like sound when you turn it off, but I can't tell if it's different than the on-droplet type sound. Again, I suspect this was not a high priority for this device, since the purpose of the droplet was to be in the shower, powered by the flow of water, which does make the sound and tell you it's turned on, but it still would be useful when you're walking around with it. The bottom line is that I'm going to try really hard not to back another crowdfunded project, but in the end, we're happy that we back the shower power by Ampere. It's a cool device that uses energy that's being wasted, we can take our droplets with us when we travel, and we finally have our podcasts in the shower. You can buy shower power for $99 US and the droplet for $49 US from Ampere.shop. As soon as I stopped recording that piece I just talked to you about, I realized maybe this didn't sound like an endorsement for shower power because we aren't actually using the hydroelectric power. However, Steve reminded me that when he takes his shower power off of the shower and he puts it in the uh, little caddy to listen to his podcast, when he's done, he puts it onto the shower and then or he reconnects it to the shower power so that when I'm taking a shower, it is charging his shower power. So in an odd way, we are using hydroelectric power to power the shower power. Let's have a listen to another CSUN Assistive Tech Conference interview. I'm talking to Robert Jaquist of the of American Thermoform, and I'm looking at a piece of paper with a, a butterfly on it, and Robert's going to explain to us what I'm looking at and what I'm feeling. Okay, this paper is called Swell Touch Paper. It is technically microcapsule paper. It's coated with a special coating. And when printed on with black carbon-based ink, uh, you can then put it through a machine like this, and it will raise the image. So for the people who can't see the video, this we're looking at something that looks like kind of like a big black tall printer, but it's got fans on the top. 
Right. Some people used to call these things a Susie Bake Oven. <laughs> so so the, uh, the page would go through and from the front and come out on the back side. What's right. going on on the inside? Uh, it's exposed to infrared light. So the paper gets printed on with a, just a normal printer to start? Normal laser printer. Okay, so normal laser printer prints black on it, and then it goes through the, uh, the infrared here, and then what happens? It ra the image raises. So you have a flat image coming in the front, you have a raised image coming out behind. Whoops, didn't mean to bump the microphone. And uh, so that's how that machine works. So for uh, the people not seeing this, as I run my fingers over this, I can, wherever there's a solid uh, line, it's, it's a quite significantly raised, very easy to feel with my fingers. There's a grid of cells here. I've got a butterfly now. They've, uh, they've politely colored it for the uh, sightlings, but uh, you can definitely feel there's little tiny holes in the butterfly's wings, and I can feel the antennas, uh, sorry, antennae. And, uh, and little bumps over here. That, and we've got Braille on there as well. That's pretty cool. And then we make a machine called the Braille Braille Embosser, and it produces Library of Congress spec Braille. And our Braille Braille Embossers run anywhere from 300 characters a second to 650 characters a second. And um, depending upon which one, some of them just print embossed paper some we have the high end will actually make magazine type pages and put a cover on and staple it for you oh, now that that's, that's for the high end folks that want to make lots of magazines so um back to this uh this infrared embosser um how do you do you expect to sell this into businesses i would imagine this would be for well you, uh, students at home might get use one this is a $1,500 item. Everything's expensive, right? Yes, yeah, so it would be use, usable for people at home, schools, businesses where you need to see charts and graphs and things like that. You know, I'm saying $1,500 is expensive, but the new uh, Apple display is $50, $1,600, so this is to be able to see right with your fingers. Right. Now, the CSUN people gave out these books that describe the hotel lobby. And so what we're looking at here is a series of embossed pages in a spiral pages. notebook, and right. you can figure out now where this, to go. This, stuff was, this is actually thermoformed. So somebody made a master out of strings and uh, embossed foil, and I don't know who knows what they used. And then they put a sheet of plastic over it, and then there was a machine called a thermoform machine and it's got a big oven, and you pull the oven over, and you wait for 10 seconds, and the motor goes, and then you shove the oven back and let it cool for a little bit and pop it out, and you have a copy. And that technology has been around since the early 60s. So that's the old and busted way of doing it, not yeah. the cool new way. Right. Well, but, you know, there's a, you, a thermoform makes beautiful tactile graphics. Some of the best tactile graphics you'll ever see come out of thermoform is you can do things with thermoform that it's very hard to do with anything else. This is very cool. I've never seen anything like this. And uh, if people wanted to learn more about it, where would they go? Uh, they go to American Thermoform and uh, AmericanThermoform.com. Very good. Thank you very much, Robert. This is pretty cool stuff. And uh, I will give you a brochure and you can add on whatever contact information you need.
Very good. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. You have a great day. One of my favorite ways for people to support the work we do here at the PodFeed Podcast Empire is through PayPal. If you go to podfeed.com slash PayPal, you can push the button and send any size donation you like. The reason I like PayPal so much is that there are people who make regular donations on a schedule of their own choosing, and it reminds me that they're still out there listening. This week, I got a donation from John Murray. He's donated before, and he always sends a lovely little note along with his donation telling me that he enjoys the show. The money helps pay the bills, and the note warms my heart. If you feel you get value out of the work we do here, please consider going to PayPal and making a donation like John. Thank you, John, for all your support. Dumb. 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 Dumb questions. Dumb questions. Dumb questions. How do I? What is? How come I always have to? It's time for Dumb Question Corner. you might have been confused by those two pieces of intro music. That was the Dumb Question Corner theme and the Tiny Tip theme, and there's a reason for that. In our awesome Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack, John Endall asked what he dubbed a dumb question. I thought I had a clever answer to his question, but Caitlin B. came up with an answer that is a fabulous tiny tip. First, the problem to be solved. Here's the question that John posted. This might be a dumb question, trademark no silicast, but does anyone know of a way to easily show the entire path of a file when using Spotlight? I know I can hold down the command key and the path appears at the bottom of the screen, but it's truncated due to my overly deep folder structure. The Spotlight window cannot be resized, so what? Uh, so the picture he shows is all you can see. He attached a screenshot with personal information blurred. The actual path for this file is slash volume slash sabret slash gentle slash library slash mobile documents slash com apple cloud doc slash lcb. It goes on and on and on from there. Anyway, he found it by opening the file from Spotlight in Affinity Photo and then doing a save as. That's a poor workaround, though. Thanks for any suggestions. Caleb B. jumped in right away to try to answer and explain that he didn't know if it was possible in Spotlight, but he suggested doing the search from within the finder instead. In order to achieve the goal, in Finder, go to the View menu and select Show Path Bar. From now on, all Finder windows will show you the full path down at the bottom of the window of your selected file. To clarify, Callum is talking about using the little search magnifying glass in all Finder windows, which is actually a spotlight search, but perhaps a more direct way of searching the file system. In this, at this point, we were partway to a good solution. But in studying John's problem description, it occurred to me that if he had a long enough depth to his file structure, he might not even be able to see the full path on a super wide finder window. A more efficient solution would be if he could have a text representation of the path rather than graphical. My solution was to use the terminal for the path, and I invoked another tiny tip to make John's life easier. I wrote, let's say you want to do this often and a screenshot of a long path might not be very useful. Remember a while back, Frank Voss gave us a tiny tip about how to put an icon in your Finder windows to go straight to the terminal in that enclosing folder. I use it all the time, and it comes in handy here. If you follow Caleb's advice and use the Show in Enclosing Folder action and then click the icon Frank suggested, you can then type simply PWB for Print Working Directory in Terminal, and you'll get the path right there in text. 
If you only need this once in a blue moon, that terminal icon Frank gave us might not be something you want there all the time, but if it's a frequent requirement, it is awesome. I included a screenshot of a file buried seven levels deep in the finder, which illustrates how long the path name gets, and then the output of the terminal command pwb, which is much shorter and probably more useful. I was pretty smug about my solution, but then Caleb came back with a far better solution than invoking the terminal. He wrote, you don't even need to do that these days. You can right-click any element in the path bar at the bottom of a finder window and select copy as path name. If you right-click a folder, you also get the option to open in terminal, which I didn't know either. You can even just select the file in the results list, then copy it with command C. When you try to paste it somewhere, it will just paste the path name if it's not appropriate to paste the actual file. This is so cool. I had no idea this option was available. To reiterate, Calum is saying to right-click on the file name in the path bar, not the file name where you see it in the main part of the finder window. I love my little open terminal icon in my finder toolbars that Frank Voss gave us, but it's also pretty cool that you can right-click on any folder in the path bar and do the same thing. That will be super useful for when I'm on someone else's computer and I need to jump into the terminal. So thank you to John for the dumb question, and thank you to Kalem for a super cool tiny tip to solve the problem. Now, one thing to note is we never answered John's question of how to get the full path from Spotlight, but we were so excited that we had solutions that didn't solve his exact problem that we just kept going and we declared victory at that point. The real lesson here is if you're reading or listening to this and you haven't joined our Slack community, come see what you're missing. Come join us at podfeet.com slack. All right, let's switch gears and listen to another CSUN Assistive Tech Conference interview. I've always wanted to learn Braille, and when I was a little girl, I used a piece of cardboard and a punch to teach it to myself. I've forgotten what I learned from back then, but I'm at the OFA booth with Jane Jung, and she's got a, a tool in front of me here to help teach children or early Braille learners, we should just call them, uh, learn to, to read and write in Braille. Is that correct? Yeah, Taptilo is created to make Braille learning fun and easy for the Braille starters who still have issues when they started learning Braille. So it has five, it has nine Braille cells with Braille display and it has nine Braille blocks. So anyone can practice reading and writing at the same time. So what we're looking at is something maybe uh, one and a half times, or about the size of an extended keyboard, maybe. Yes. And there's, uh, there's, you said there's nine cells, meaning nine sets of six things that are going to bump up at me to read. Yes. But above each one, there's a little uh, turquoise box that has cells also. And what do those do? Uh, this is we call Braille block. It can be detached and attached really easily with magnetic. And this braille block has six dots also, and the dots can be pushed up. And it has tick-tick sound like this. So students can practice braille, braille writing with this, with this braille block. Okay, so if, if the letter A comes up down below, yeah. then you, on, on the reader part, you take out the block, you make, you make the same symbol, and that's how you're learning that, that's with the, that making that is writing and, and reading it is with your fingers. Yeah, that's correct. You just pick up the block and make the same pattern. You can write by yourself. Okay, so now this is also connected over Bluetooth to your phone, is that correct? Yes, we have our own app. It is named Taptilo 4.0. It is free. You can download it 
any any app store you use and Taptilo device and Taptilo 4.0 could be connected through Bluetooth and I just connected with our app and my device yeah now the device serial number just showed that what kind of device you're connected now and we have the same contents in here and also device so when I choose the topic braille oh now I so we're looking at the uh she's got an internet connection thing yeah it's always hard in one of these rooms yeah but when the content is shown on this app Taptilo's braille will refresh right away to show that content so you could you, you would be typing on on the uh on the app on the phone uh we have all pre-made pre-made curriculums and contents in it so no more typing is needed but based on students' interest or learning progress, customized contents are really needed. So you can also create your own lesson just pressing the pl plus button here. And you can see that you can import word lists from Spreadsheet or you can add any words by yourself. And when the word is added on this app and you can tap the word here, it'll, it'll show it right away. So what happens if a word has more than nine characters in it? Oh. From now on, we, we only have nine cells, so it is limited to add if the word has more than nine letters. I was just thinking when you get into custom dictionaries, it gets interesting. What if you wanted to learn medical terms? I mean, if you were a doctor yeah. who had just just started to lose vision or lost vision, how would you do that? But yeah, this is this is interesting. I like the idea of these little blocks because they do come off real easily. They're, they're yeah. uh, whoops, I'm kind of clumsy there with my left hand, but they're, they're fun to click too. Make yeah. good fidget, fidget toys while you're on a conference call, if yeah, you're on mute. <laughs> <laughs> this is very neat. So the Taptilo, T-A-P-T-I-L-O, uh, one yeah, L. Right. And uh, where would we find this? Uh, you can find it. You can just search on the Google or you can visit our website, www.taptilo.com. Or you can contact on the and the email address that is you can see on that website also. Okay, very good. This is uh, this is pretty interesting. I like to see stuff like this. I keep wanting to go back and learn Braille for real. Thank you. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Shots. How are you doing today, Bart? I am doing good. Um... Managed to get out before the rain for my cycle, so uh, nice. I did have to walk in the rain, but I much prefer that to cycling in the rain. Yeah, walking in the rain is somehow not as nasty, right? <laughs> yeah, there was no wind, so my umbrella was actually useful. In Ireland, it's often windy, and so an umbrella is like this thing that will blow inside out and give you no protection, because the rain is coming at your face instead of at your head. Marianne <laughs> said that the way you can tell tourists in New Zealand is they're the ones with the umbrellas when it's raining, because there's yeah, like no point. Much. Yeah, well, today was the day with the point, which is fine. So that I was, you know, it was fine. I got to use my upside down umbrella, which I adore. So yeah, no, it was good. It's good. Oh, that's right. That's right. And you've got, you've booked some leave. So you're looking forward to that, right? I am indeed. So after I finish recording this podcast, I go into leave mode or holiday mode, as we call it on this side of the Atlantic. Um, yeah. So I'm looking forward to that for sure. Definitely need it. Good, it's good, been a good. while. You know, it's, yeah. I think you took a day off once or twice. Yeah. And with all this pandemic shenanigans a day off doesn't have the same meaning it used to no no anyway All yes right. definitely. well let's get into the uh feedback and follow-up shall we 
Indeedy. So we'll pick up the biggest story du jour, obviously, is the ongoing fallout from Russia's invasion of Ukraine in terms of the impact on all things IT. Since last we spoke, Twitter have made two more policy tweaks. Um, The first one is they came under a bit of pressure to obey the uh, international rules on treatment of prisoners of war. You're not supposed to, governments are not supposed to post pictures of POWs. And Twitter were allowing government accounts, I believe they were Ukrainian accounts, but it doesn't matter because you're not supposed to show POWs, it doesn't matter who it is. So they kind of went, oh yeah, I suppose we should obey the law there. So they're doing that. So the news is in charge of doing that. Exactly, the news, the, well, yeah, and even it's then you're, you're the not supposed to show exploited video and stuff. Like, you're supposed to be respectful of POWs. Ah, the pictures of the oligarchs have not been exactly uh, respectful, I wouldn't say. No, but oligarchs aren't POWs, they're just rich sods. Oh, no, 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 this is a prisoner of war who is an oligarch. Wow. Yeah. That's unusual for yeah. the rich to, to get involved. Interesting. Yeah. So anyway... Yeah, and then the other change is one that I think is more significant, is Twitter have tweaked their algorithm so they are not going to promote tweets from accounts operated by governments that oppress the media, which is a very roundabout saying, a way of saying we're not going to promote Russian tweets. But they didn't yeah, put it in the rule a, as Russian tweets. That's they, an interesting one, because I can picture a dial that goes from, from negative one to positive one. That, yeah. that where, where is that? where it oppresses the media. I mean, it's sort of, what is the the old line about porn? I know it when I see it. I see it. And there's some easy ones, right? At the moment, Russia is an easy one. Like, you know, we can't have a debate. There is no gray. That that one's easy. I would think North Korea might be in that category. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but but it's all the other ones in between that are, it would be hard to see. It would, wouldn't it? But yeah, basically they didn't want to say we're blocking Russia, so they made up some words, which basically when you read between the lines says, oh yeah, we're blocking Russia. Yeah, okay. So. Meanwhile, uh, the FBI got together with their counterparts in Germany to go after some Russian government-backed cybercrime. So they, they had a good week of it. Uh, they took out a botnet called Cyclops Blink, which is a rather cool name for a botnet, and they also took down a dark web marketplace that was used as a, I guess, a way of making money for the cybercrime backed by the Russian government. That was called Hydra. So uh, they had lots of fun taking down things. So really, that whole cyber war thing is sort of kind of happening as well. And mm. I guess this is just one of the battles on it. But it went well for the Americans and the Germans. So I say two thumbs up to that. There you go. Well, maybe they shouldn't call it uh, Hydra. <laughs> Well, that does kind of imply that now that I've lopped one of its heads off, it'll come back shortly. But let's hope it's wrong. Let's hope yeah. the naming was wrong. Yeah. Um, our other long-running story is that social media companies continue to try to adapt and to tweak and to make themselves not quite as much of a disaster for society. So in that vein, uh, WhatsApp have actually done a big thing. This, I think, is actually worthy of calling out. So they've had a feature in beta for a while that they call Communities. And this is intended to be a a managed space that has a lot of admin features. And so it's designed for an organization like a school to have a safe place on WhatsApp. So not like a WhatsApp group, which is kind of an, you know, anything goes kind of a place. In a community, there are administrators and there's a control of who gets in and posts could be deleted. And you can basically moderate it and keep it, keep an eye on things so that you can have a safe space within WhatsApp for your community. 
So I think that's a nice yeah. that that feature is now out of beta and that's now available to everyone. So I think that's good progress. Interesting. Um, there are things going on in other parts of the world other than Ukraine. Um, there is an election, a very controversial election, um, uh, on uh, in progress in the Philippines. Um, and Facebook say they have removed over 400 accounts that were up to no good trying to influence that election. So that, I think, is positive. Mm. Um, WhatsApp have updated their app so that when you enable disappearing messages, the iPhone won't save the photo out of a disappearing message. To which I'm left going, oh. why was it ever doing that? Doesn't that go against the point of disappearing messages? So okay. yeah, that was obviously a silly whoopsie somewhere in the code. Yeah. Um, and then Meta just went and made everyone really cranky at them when they were like, yeah, 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 we figured out how we're going to monetize the metaverse. 47% commission. But Apple is evil for charging 30, don't forget. Yeah, 30, which is usually 15 which is usually 15 for most people, and the internet's collective head exploded. Like, really, everyone's like, you, what? How could you, how How do you not see this as tone deaf? But yeah, so, well, I don't know how that, long it'll stand. No, remember, they're not in charge of the metaverse with a, with a lowercase m. They have yes. chosen to call their metaverse, metaverse, uh, to make it sound like they own the metaverse. So these people don't have to go to the Facebook metaverse. No, but if you'd like to join their big platform, just like people don't have to go to Apple stuff, you know, it's just, it's so analogous to the App Store. And Meta are so self-righteous about this. Right. It it smells just like it, except for... It's like only worse. It's like, we'll take the 30% from everyone, whether you're big or small. And if you have our hardware, we'll take another 17% off the top of that too. It's like, wait, uh, who the... but, you know, but what I was what I was trying to say is the the metaverse as a as a marketplace with a with a store and all that that hasn't actually taken off yet to be the de facto place, and the metaverse is bigger than Facebook, is bigger than Meta, so maybe this would be enough to keep people away from it and going to the other platforms that are out there. Maybe I mean you're right. It, it's also it's also it's early. It's so early that the network effect hasn't given anyone the advantage. So any small little nudge away is potentially catastrophic because it gets amplified. So this may be a spectacular own goal as well as just being jaw-droppingly I like ironic. It's not even ironic, hypocritical. I think it's probably a better word than ironic. It's just like, oh, you know, both sides of your mouth should at least talk about the same thing. <laughs> Anyway, so that just made my head explode and half the internet as well. And then the last one, so that we end on a happier note, um, Twitter are experimenting with a new feature that I really hope they roll out. It's basically, they're calling it unmention. But it's basically a way to say, I don't want to be notified about this conversation anymore. I don't care how many people tag my name in it. I'm out of here. Yeah, I think that's a great idea because you get two people who are having a conversation. I always feel guilty when somebody will tag, you know, somebody big uh, along with talking to me and then they Mm. just keep replying on it. And it turns out you can remove somebody pretty easily from a conversation, but you have to actively do that. Allowing the person to actively extract themselves, I think, is a great idea. Yeah, it's it's such a simple thing. And this is not something I would have understood until I've started to get more, because of the podcast and stuff, starting to get more followers. And I do end up on those kind of triangular conversations where a listener will tag me and some other Apple person. And then a whole conversation will go on that I'm not involved in. And I'm, no, notify, you know, 18 notifications. 
Oh, and none of them are actually for me. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> so anyway, I hope that I hope that rolls out. They're just testing it right now, right? Yeah, so it's it's in it's in that thing they do where they give it to a few people to see what happens. So Okay. Yeah. I like the editorial by Bart. I want this and I want it now. Yep. Yep, <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, it's been a year since App Tracking Transparency came out. Uh, so we've had people continuing to study it. And according to one research group, there are now more people saying yes than this time last year. Huh. But it's really varied. Like, if you look at the numbers, there are some categories of app where 75% of people say yes. Hmm. And then there's obviously other ones where it's like 4%. So oh, it's, in different it's, categories it's massively apps, varied. Saying? Yeah, so game, so on average, gaming as a whole gets about 30% clicks, but some games get 75%. So whether that's because the games somehow invite the community to help support them or something, I don't know what's going on there, but some games are getting like 75% approve. And then, you know, some stuff is only getting like 4%, but games on average get about 30%. It's It's all over the shop. And... I read through the article looking for a theory, a hypothesis, a, well, this explains this weird data. And everyone's like going, oh, that's weird data. <laughs> so You said it was more. Did you say how much more? Oh, this time last year, I didn't say because I didn't do the math in my head. But this time last year, it was uh, less. <laughs> it was like, it was 11% or something this time last year. And now it's 25%, something like that. On okay. average, but it was, I wonder I think if the, the, because there's not as much information out actively about it right now, whether that's why people are just not thinking about it. But you're still being asked, do you want this app to track you? And the wording hasn't gotten any less scary. True, true. I was just wondering whether people aren't just, it's not at the top of consciousness and you're like, oh, yeah, 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 whatever. And whether any of that's going on. But the fact that it's different by category, that makes it, like you say, huh. Yeah, it's very noisy data. Hmm. So there's a there's a thing going on that I don't understand. Yeah. So it's interesting. Uh, meanwhile, in, in in another long running story, Tim Cook continues to be against sideloading. He was invited to give a keynote presentation at the annual inter the annual conference of the International Association of Privacy Professionals, or the IAPP. And uh, is actually, I, I listened to his whole speech. It's linked uh, with the appropriate time code in, in the show notes. Um, he basically lays out Apple's strategy piece by piece by piece and then comes to the point where this is how sideloading would mess it all up. And he does go out of his way to say, we want to have both privacy and competition, so we want to work with regulators. So it's not a screed against regulation. It's kind of saying, we get what you want to do, we want to help. This is not what you want to do. Oh, which is an interesting argument to make. Yeah. Uh, and he does go after the data industrial complex, as he calls it quite heavily in the early parts of the speech. The data industrial complex? Yeah, which is how he describes what other Google? people, what is it other people have called it? The, not the privacy economy, the Who surveillance is? economy is the other term people use. Okay. So data industrial complex. It was interesting. Um, we made the analogy that if in the real world someone strapped a webcam to your car as you were driving your kids to school, you'd say this was a, an emergency, but somehow in the online tracking world, it's perfectly fine to follow everyone around as they go about their daily business. 
It's an interesting way to do it. Yes, it's not a long. So, the actual keynote itself is like an hour, but Tim Cook is only on for I think it's it's twelve minutes or so. So it's you know you can about fourteen minutes ish. He starts. I've never listened to him talk about anything that I didn't end up saying. Well, that was interesting. Yeah. So again, he's not excited, or it's arguably a dry speech to a bunch of bureaucrats. But I thought it was actually good content. If you were to read it as an essay, it would be a very good essay. So think of it as an audiobook. <laughs> and finally, just to wrap up another long-running story, um, we now know uh, this isn't this hasn't happened recently. We just now know about it, and we didn't know about it before. But we now know that Pegasus was also deployed against EU officials. So we knew it was against Ooh. ministers of various governments. We now know it was also EU officials, and we don't know who was abusing Pegasus to do that. Ooh. Because remember, uh, NSO Group were just basically giving it away to anyone. Well, no, sorry, not to anyone, to authoritative, authoritarian regimes who were happy to pay cash. Um, so the software was out there being used by really dodgy people. And we, we genuinely don't know who it was attacking the EU officials. So, yeah. Oh, sorry, there is one finally, finally. There was a story that I didn't make giant amounts of news about. Um Apple introduced a feature in recent versions of the operating systems where it hides your IP address when it loads images inside emails. And if you had mail set to give notifications on your watch, then if the mail had an image, your watch would go and fetch the image directly, which would leak your IP address. So now mail on the Apple Watch also uses the IP address hiding features of mail on iOS and macOS. I do remember that one, and I still think it's funny to think about reading email on your watch. I mean, I I always try when I get a notification from somebody interesting. I sit there going, oh, well, it stopped mid-sentence, and that's all I got. Yeah, to be honest, I have very few notifications that I allow to push through to the watch, and mail is is so not on that list. I like being for disturbed. that reason and others. We were talking earlier about how I don't have time to get anything done. I think it's because I let everything bother me. I'm like, ooh, look at that! I could answer that person. Squirrel. I could talk to this person. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have no deep dives, but we do have some action alerts. One with a giant big exclamation point. Uh, I will just read the headline from Naked Security. Yet another Chrome zero day emergency update patch now exclamation point. Mm. So do that. Uh, Meanwhile, in Microsoft land, Patch Tuesday has been and gone, and it does include a few bugs that are being actively exploited in the wild. So definitely patchy, patchy, patch, patch on your Microsoft-y stuff. And all all Microsoft stuff, not just the OS, but the the apps? Yeah, I I don't remember where the zero days are. I just... Say yes. If Microsoft offers you, yeah, if Microsoft offers you updates, take them. I mean, Microsoft have a unified installer these days for their updates, so you're kind of getting it all together. Uh, backing up to the Chrome Zero Day patch, if if we see a, something like that for Chrome, is it a pretty good guess that it affects Chromium, and therefore if you're on Edge, you should do it? Do an update? I, or? Not, not necessarily. 50-50? Okay. Like, Chromium is like the, the, the core of Chrome, but there's so much of Google Spy stuff. Like, there's so much wrapped around Chromium to make it Chrome, and the stuff that Microsoft wrap around Chromium to make it Edge is so different that I, I, I would guess 50-50 chance. Okay. Okay. Because, you know, yeah, they do share a lot of code, but they also don't share a lot of code. <laughs> right, right. So. Okay. 
But hey, since there's Microsoft uh, Patch Tuesday, then that would pick up Edge. We swings and roundabouts for right there. Precisely. Right? And while you're in the middle of updating, Android uh, got its monthly update too, which includes actually some quite nasty, what they seem to call get root. I would have just called them privilege escalation, but I guess that doesn't sound human friendly enough. Get root vulnerabilities. Um and of course, Naked Security point out that if you have an Android phone that doesn't get its update straight from Google, you now know your phone has these horrible vulnerabilities, but you're waiting on your phone provider and or your cell carrier to let you have the update. And they yet again say, if you want a secure Android experience, maybe buy a Pixel, because at least then there's you're getting the Apple experience, right? Google fix, you get. I guess. Anyway. It's not always the case. <laughs> And yeah, for how long? Because sometimes the wait is infinite. Um, right. Which is right. obviously not good. Uh, and then Apple are getting quite a bit of side eye from the security community the, these last two weeks because as we recorded last time, Apple had recently pushed out some fairly important security updates to their most recent macOS Monterey and iOS. But they hadn't pushed those same updates to Big Sur or Catalina. And I guess one thing was, ah, yeah, they mustn't be affected. Only the security community were pretty quick to point out, yes, they most certainly were affected. And even now, we've only since got an update for Big Sur. Catalina has the bugs, does not have a patch. Oh, and and how long has that been? At least two weeks, because the last time we Hmm. spoke... The, the the first update had just come out a few days before, and so we record every two weeks. So it's been at least two weeks that Catalina's been left in the lurch. And I know people still running Catalina. Yeah, me. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right now, the second on this very Mac, because this this machine just needs to be replaced with a shiny new Mac Studio, but stuff. Yeah. <laughs> stuff, right? So worthy warnings then. Um, the Cash app is apparently really popular, has at least 8 million users, um, and unfortunately they had a cranky former employee who they let go but didn't quite remove, I'm almost certain it was a he, probably was I'm afraid, didn't quite remove his access to things in unison with firing. So uh, the rogue employee, or rogue former employee, downloaded all the data. And that includes people's names, account numbers, the account values, what's being held in those accounts, and the trading activities of those accounts. Wow. Yeah, w- yeah. where I worked, anybody who had that kind of access, when you told them they were fired, you took them out that day? You didn't yeah, let them usually, go back to their desk alone? Yeah, pretty much, right? Usually, by the time that they're in the office being told they're fired, they already have no credentials. Their right, badge right. has probably already stopped working, and someone is waiting with a cardboard box... Saying, I am going to your desk with you. Fill this box. Good day. Here's your coffee cup. Bye-bye. Yeah. So, yeah, that that's an oversight there. And Brian Krebs is warning of a new tactic that is succeeding in tricking people into falling for crypto scams. So what they're doing is they're making these really well-polished YouTube presentations containing actual celebrities like Elon Musk actually, uh, uh, you know, aspi- actually giving their spiel on why crypto is great. So they're mm-hmm. actual speeches by these actual celebrities, but they've edited it together into one big story, It's even though it's old speeches. They pretend it's a live event, and then on a lower third, they put the links to the crypto scam. So those uh, people uh, are really talking about crypto, and those really are people who are big on the whole crypto uh, thing, uh, but they have nothing to do with the scam in the lower third. 
Ugh. And it's not a live event. And Ugh. so this is your standard crypto doubling scheme. If you send us your Bitcoin, we'll send you back twice as many. Which, if you understand how crypto works, is a terrible, 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 terrible idea. Because once you hand over your crypto, you've handed over your crypto. Good day. Exactly. So, of, of course, that's how this goes. Um, the, the, the person who, who tells the story firsthand to Brian Krebs basically had a Bitcoin, a full Bitcoin. Oh, wow. That they gave into one of these scams and never got back. That's Ugh. a lot of money. So, yeah. So, on, on the news, I don't have a link to this, but on the news, they did an article about crypto scamming in uh, dating apps. So the way wow. it works is is you meet up with somebody in a dating app and you get to know them. Mm-hmm. Spend a long time getting to know them, talking to them, you know, finding out each other's hobbies, maybe, you know, starting a relationship. And then uh, eventually the person with wh- whom you now feel like you trust says, hey, you know, have you gotten into crypto yet? And this is something I've been doing. And they give you a link and this, this, wow. they interviewed this guy where it was this woman he he was, you know, involved with in this, uh, you know, texting for quite some time. And then she convinced him to give it a try. And he put in a little bit of a little bit of money to buy crypto and it started to grow and he was making more money. And so he put in more and he was making more money and he put in more and he was making more money. And then he tried to get it out and it was all gone. He had put in his life savings of $1.3 million. <sighs> and total, they said, uh, the, the, the people you know, trying to figure out how to stop this, said it's it's on the order of $240 million has been stolen from people in this way. So it's a, wow. it's a, it's a real thing. Yeah, and the guy said, hey, I bet you're thinking I'm an idiot, right? <laughs> I, mean, no. I can't believe he went on, but it was like, yeah, but I just got taken in by because it looked like I was making, I think he was even able to get some money out. So it felt real. You know, just enough it. to make it real, yeah. Right, until he tried to get a lot out, at which point they just went, yeah, no, you don't have any money at all. That strikes me, there's two things immediately strike me with that. So the first thing is there's been a long-running thing on internet dating sites, basically single scams targeting older people. You know, you get to a certain stage in life and there's a non-zero chance your partner goes before you. And so you're a very vulnerable person and people would put in time and effort to build up a fake friendship and then, you know, you get the usual, oh, something terrible has happened, I need help, please send me some money kind of a scam but to turn that into a crypto scam is an interesting twist on that existing scheme and what you're describing there the scheme where you're presented with a website that looks like you're making money but as soon as you try to to actually actualize your money that that's also very common in all sorts of scenarios so not just going after older people oh hey and the other thing actually that springs to mind is do you know you know i'm okay I know you probably know, but, the, you know, con is an abbreviation. A con man is a confidence trickster. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, that's where the term comes from. And this is a classic con, right? You build up a relationship, you build up confidence, and then you use it to mess with people. It's that's disgusting. Like, it's it's the ickiest aspects of humanity. But, yeah, that's, that is a true con in the truest sense of the word. That's horrible. So, yeah, be aware, people. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh. Much happier news. OpenSSH has gone to version 9, which is cool. Uh, and they have pre- preemptively, yeah, basically they're getting ahead of the curve. And they have begun to add the changes in how their crypto works to be ready for when um, quantum cryptography moves out of the lab into the real world. So they are, they're not going to be 
caught wanting by the the move of crypto from hypothetical to real because they're putting the stuff in place now which is exactly when you're supposed to do it before it becomes a catastrophe so i think that's just very yet another good sign of you know why is open ssh one of the most trusted providers of security on the internet because this and it gives me an excuse to plug a podcast that i think particularly listener steve will be very excited by so you put me on to Alan Alda's great podcast, and you know he has a science variant of his podcast. Yeah, so the, the main one is uh, Clear and Vivid. The secondary one is Clear and Vivid Science. A lot but of imagine, science leaks into the first one, but right? Yeah, imagine the second one, only you take the nerdiness just up one notch. It's still aimed at normal people, but a smaller set of normal people who are deeper into this stuff. So it's like, more so. So in this case, it's a, it's a show called Mindscape by Sean Carroll, who is a theoretical physicist and science, educa- and science communicator, which is an interesting mix. Um, and he interviews scientists about whatever it is they're excited about. And they have fascinating conversations, but they get deeper than Alan Alda does. Um, I, I can second this uh, recommendation because Steve is addicted to Sean Carroll's Mindscape. He listens to everything Sean Carroll does. And uh, we listened to one on the way back from San Diego. And he's just such a, he's such a fascinating guy. He, he's, he's a, you know, one of the great minds of our time, but he's willing to talk about anything. He's got some ask me anythings that are yes. fascinating. There are things like, uh, so how do you feel about bubbles? Or, you know, <laughs> are you left or right-handed? Uh, you know, uh, he talks a lot about philosophy too, and the connection of yeah. philosophy to physics. He, he's really, really, I think he's really listenable too. He is, and he also often gets on people he disagrees with to have these really deep conversations where they usually figure out that they agree on 90% of things and they really hone in on the one thing where the difference comes about. And it's usually not something factual. It's usually basically, and we don't actually know this, so you sort of think that it's probably this, and I think it's probably this, and when we extrapolate forward, we end up with these two worldviews. Great show. Anyway, last summer, he had a quantum cryptographer as his guest. And even though it's one year old, it's still really, really, really good. And it's the first time I ever heard anyone explain to me the engineering of quantum computers. Because I've always, you know, I had my computer scientist hat on. Does it solve NP-complete problems? You know, all that kind of stuff. But if you're going to make a quantum computer, you need to have the equivalent of your NAND gates and your NOR gates sitting on your silicon in Intel's factory. What is that for a quantum computer? And they actually talk about what it is that goes into these qubits that we actually have sitting in labs. Like um, Google have a have a chip that has to be kept in the deep freeze, the very, 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 very deep freeze that has 37 qubits on it that works. About huh. 3% of the time. So they have to run everything 500 times and then they the noise basically gets wiped away and the, the true value comes out. So it's still noisy, but it is actually working. Anyway, absolutely fascinating conversation about quantum computing. And it does sort of give you the idea that this stuff is coming, but it's not here just yet. And so when you put those two things together, the OpenSSH proactive approach and this podcast explaining where we really are, I thought it was a fascinating mix. And that was a pure accident. That just happened to be, I'm going through the whole back series of Sean Carroll's podcast. And that just played on my ears this morning. 
<laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I actually posted the Naked Security article about OpenSSH going uh, post-quantum in our, our Slack, and I, I found it in my feed, and I read the whole thing. And I, it was it really takes you through step-by-step step what it means without doing—there's no math. And it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's very understandable, I thought. I thought that was a really good article. I'm going to guess Paul Duckin wrote it because he does amazing stuff at that Naked Security blog. I'm just going on a guess there, but he, he's able to explain the most amazingly detailed things so human beings yep, can understand. Yep, you're right. It is Paul Ducklin. Yeah, i I got to find a way to get him on to Let's Talk Apple sometime as a security story, because he's Ooh, fantastic. That would be got to find a way. I'll find an excuse. <laughs> anyway, um, and then the last thing, which I was briefly very excited about, and it will be interesting in the future, but I don't get to play, and therefore I'm mildly cranky. DuckDuckGo are doing a browser for the Mac, and it is in beta. And all of these things made me happy. So I went to download it and went, yeah, no, it's a closed beta. You can apply here to a waiting list. You know, a lot of times those wait lists are turn around right away. I've, I've done it a lot of times where it's like 10 minutes later, you get the email. So it's probably worth trying. Mm, okay. Maybe I shouldn't be so pessimistic then. I, I, I see those things and I walk away and it's like, yeah, it'll cross my newsfeed again when it's an open beta. Maybe so I will apply. Do you, do you use the DuckDuckGo uh, search engine? I do. Uh, I have, yes and. Um, I have found that on whatever it is, I do different things on my phone to my Mac. And the things I'm doing on my phone, I have no problem with DuckDuckGo. It actually works really well for me. I'm usually planning dinner or something, so I'm looking up recipes and stuff, and I get really good search results on my phone. The things I do on my Mac, DuckDuckGo is awful for. Oh, that's interesting. So your questions are easier on the iPhone. Yeah, WorkMe obviously does weirder things. Actually, a lot of it is because WorkMe is doing stuff with jargon, and jargon means that they're English words, but you're using them in a very specific context. And Google is magic for knowing the context you mean. Like you look up word for let, and it's going to go, oh yeah, you're a JavaScript guy, so you probably want this information on the let keyword. You stick that into DuckDuckGo and it goes, here's the here's the definition of the word. Here's the definition on Wikipedia or on dictionary.com. Have a nice day. You know, I've been having a world of hurt with Safari lately, and actually we're having a discussion on that in our Slack, podfee.com slash Slack. You should join. It's great over there. Um, we're, we're, we're starting to hone in that it might have something to do with the M1s. We're not sure, but where Safari just gets tired and just <laughs> won't, re- it, like, just won't resolve web, web pages. It just sits there with a blank screen, or I, I mentioned you know, I'm having trouble with some audio things. Um, all kinds of strange behaviors where, like, I was I was coding, and I had typed some code into the uh, console, and I needed to just refresh because I'd made some changes in the code. And when I re- refreshed, the code didn't go away. It was still there. So it's just <laughs> been acting very, very weird. So I've been an Edge user for the last couple of weeks because Safari within hours of having rebooted becomes unusable to me. So there's a reason I brought up Edge was, oh, uh, it defaulted to Bing. And I was getting these search results. It's like, this isn't working at all. And then I went, oh, it's Bing. Changed yeah. it back to Google. And now my results are good again. Yeah. So it is interesting. So DuckDuckGo works for me on the mobile just because I just do different things. Like a tiny little phone screen. I'm not writing JavaScript code, right? So I'm just doing different things and it's it works really well for me there. So my phones are all set to default to DuckDuckGo and my desktop machines are all set to Google. It's like, okay, fine. Spy on me here. But you're all still you know excited about, about the DuckDuckGo browser. 
But just, I am because I, I, I want it. You want it to succeed, I, right? Yes, exactly. I want it to succeed because they have a business model. They're an enterprise, not a charity. They have a business model based on trying to prove that you, like Apple are proving you can be environmentally friendly and spectacularly successful. I want DuckDuckGo to be privacy conscious and successful. Just to prove it can be done, to put a lie to this whole notion of, well, I mean, the only way to make money on the internet is to spy on people. <laughs> right, right. Maybe not. <laughs> Hey, I, w- I would like this has nothing to do with security, but I'm going to take this moment okay. to to complain about Apple and uh, inv- and the environment. Steve ordered the Mac Studio, and as part of the purchase of, of he bought a Mac Studio and a Studio Display, and as part of that purchase, he did a trade in of his iMac, and so they uh, shipped him the the uh, box for his iMac. Mm-hmm. Shortly after that, he got the Studio, but the Studio Display didn't come. And there's a limited time that you have to return the the, the device you're returning right. in that box. And the time time's ticking, 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 and he's got no shipping notice. And so I said, well, just call him. They'll, they'll change it. They won't be a problem. And they gave him so much grief. I mean, he was 20 minutes with the first person, another 20 with the second person, before they very begrudgingly said, okay, we'll send you another box. This is yeah. a nine- pound box i stacked the two boxes together and they're as tall as i am i mean these boxes are massive they couldn't just print up another label like we think maybe the label is time-based or something they Uh, couldn't just like email them a label they have to send a whole new box i can give you a small peek under the hood there because i have similar issues with apple's recycling here in ireland so apple don't do their own recycling they contract it out okay And it's different companies in different parts of the world. And here in Ireland, it's a UK company called Brightstar, who are the dimmest, dimmest anti-star you can ever come across. They're horrible people to deal with. Hmm. But they just mess up all the time. And Apple are powerless to help because they've outsourced it to Brightstar. So I think when you're talking to Apple, they're trying to get some sense out of their provider, whoever your recycling provider is. No, 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 this isn't recycling. This isn't recycling. This is, I am sending the iMac back to Apple for money. This isn't being thrown away. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's exactly it. So that's right. But that's the button you push. But Apple shipped us another box. Apple couldn't just say. Yes, I know. But this is Apple's fault. I, I hate it when people blame their outsourcer. That's, no, no, that's no, 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 sorry, sorry. I was just giving some light as the under the hood what's going on as Apple subcontract this out. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just, no, no. It is Apple's fault. I don't Apple's know why that would for, be no, no. A, an outsourcer sorry. anyway, but. I was just adding some color. I am angry at Apple for partnering with terrible companies. Okay, I don't know that that's the case here. That I, I'm not discounting your story is true, but this is Apple on the phone saying we will ship you another box. Nine pounds, right. giant cardboard, foam inserts. Just I, t- I had Steve take a picture of me with these two boxes together because I'm going to send it to Tim Cook because I'm just like, here's a little opportunity for environmental improvement. I mean, that had to be shipped on a truck. All you needed to do was email me another label. Right. So I was agreeing with you. And basically my point, I am angry at Apple because their bad choice of partner gives a terrible recycling experience in Ireland. And I think there's something similar causing you stress over there. Maybe. Anyway, uh, I'm done ranting. I'm done. Yeah, but I was agreeing with your core point of it shouldn't matter to me as an Apple user who Apple partner with. Right. They need to get good partners because I should get a good service. I worked for a company where we had outsourced a bunch of our work and we were, we took it to heart that we were never allowed to blame them. We still did, right. but 
We did it amongst ourselves, but to the customer, that's not their problem. You made that decision that you live with it. Yeah, exactly. It is not an excuse. It is, but I was just putting some color on it because I've had terrible experiences trying to recycle stuff. I still do it because, you know something? Worst case scenario, they pay me to get rid of some rubbish from my house. Best case scenario, I get some store credit. Yeah, this is, I mean, the prices that we've been seeing are insanely good. I mean, Steve got $640 for a five-year-old iMac. Huh. I'd like you to tell me what a, uh, what a five-year-old PC would get you. And uh, my friend Cheyenne traded in. So I'm going to be, I have a 2017 inch 5K iMac. That's about what Steve had, isn't it? Yeah, you guys, you bought yours shortly after his and he got $640. And my my friend Cheyenne, or my friend Nancy traded in a nine-year-old MacBook Pro and got $310 for it. Nine years old. I mean, it was a 15-inch MacBook Pro with i7s and a bunch of RAM and SSD and everything, so it wasn't a bad machine, but still, it was nine years old. Do you know what I think the recyclers get out of those? I think it's the panels, those amazing Apple displays. Maybe. That's I, I, think I, I don't know what they from. do with them. I, I don't honestly know what uh, They're disassembled, they um, and bits are reused. So a lot of it gets melted down to get the rare earths back. I would think it would very much depend on the age, though. That's not, that's not, yes. that's a too blanket of a statement. I think the earlier oh, yeah. stuff, if you trade in last year's iPhone, that is not being melted down. No, that's refurb and back out to yeah. you, I think. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Where were we? <laughs> oh, we were nearly done is where we were, but not quite done. Um, so in terms of excellent explainers, uh, one crossed my mind. This is one of those book markets, so you have it to hand to help friends and family. A very good comprehensive guide to basically everything to do with your Apple ID. It, it, it's one of those, as, as uh, Don McAllister would say, it does exactly what it says in the tin. Mm. How to manage and use your Apple ID, the complete guide from Intego. <laughs> it's, it's Kirk McElhern and it does what it says. Oh, nice. Um, and then interesting insights. I'd, I was really fascinated by this article from Wired. So... Different tech companies are having different reactions to the various different bills that are making their way through the US, different houses, in fact, not just the Senate, but the various bits and bobs. And Wired basically took a moment to explain what the actual underlying things are that these companies are scared by, what it is they're protecting, what it is that they don't want to see changed, which behaviors it is that are powering, that are driving their actions. And it was just very interesting to have a look under the hood to see, oh, so that's why Amazon are against this, or that's why you know, Google are against that. It was just sort of a revealing, you know, you know, my argument is always follow the money. Well, I learned a lot more about where the money goes. Now, how do they, does the author of this know that that's why? Well, no, that sorry, sorry, they're explaining the, sorry, it, it's not. It, from the point of explaining how it is that they make their money, therefore, that's how it intersects with all this discussion, right? So it's, okay. it, it doesn't categorically say this is the reason. It's basically, these are the business models. Okay, and, and that's how, and then you can connect this dot over to that dot. Is If this is your business model, then this is why you would care about this? Exactly. So, you know, it's basically follow the money. They're sort of explaining, yeah, so this is actually how... Amazon Prime and what incentives that puts in place and why there's this third-party fulfillment by Prime, which they were rolling out and they've stopped rolling out and that has all these implications. I, I had no idea Prime was so, was so much going on under there. I learned a lot. Yeah. So I thought it was worth sharing. And the Wired, Wired do good stuff, so I shouldn't be surprised. 
So, that leaves us to cleanse our palates, and we have three. Um, one from the community, which is always delightful. Uh, you've already given the plug for Slack, but anyway, potfeed.com forward slash Slack. Um, I, I am almost certain it's... Um, Ooh, I don't know how you pronounce that Twitter handle, but anyway, I'm almost <laughs> oh, certain oh, it's Grumpy. Brennan, that's that's Yope. That's yeah. So basically, Grumpy in in, in no, the no. community. Sorry, two. Those are two different names. Are they? Oh, Grunin is Yope. Grumpy is uh, Mike Price. So one of huh. the other of them gave this. No, no. Okay, I know it's the Twitter handle is definitely the correct one. Um, somehow there was something in the Twitter. Oh, yeah. Okay, Bart's brain went wrong. Well, so, Mike, Price, Mike Price does a ton for the show, so it's okay to, re- to uh, accidentally give him credit for something, but we'll, we'll correct that in the show notes. Yes. So anyway, yes. So the Twitter link in the show notes will be right. Anyway, the point is, very good tip from the community. Uh, in the latest version of the Mac, Apple introduced a command line tool that lets you do a speed test. I mean, what it's doing is it's downloading a bunch of data and telling you how quick it is. So it's the same thing as you get an Ookla or whatever, but you won't get plastered with ads in the process. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a little bit limited, but it uh, it is an interesting little trick to to take a look at that. I like it. It's right there. Exactly, and it's a really quick thing of, is my internet acting up? One command on the terminal. It's like, no, okay, my internet's fine, so something else is broken. <laughs> to be honest, you know what I do? Way. I ping apple.com. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but the thing is, if Apple is down, that won't work. Yeah, I that's had rare, though. But the day Apple had all of those outages recently, I had really weird behavior on my iPhone because you know the way the iPhone detects that it's on a captive portal Wi-Fi by checking to see if it can hit an Apple server? Yeah. Well, the Apple server was down. I wasn't on captive portal, but my phone was saying, oh, you have to use cellular. This this Wi-Fi is broken. And the Wi-Fi was oh. fine, but Apple's test was broken. Oh, how interesting. Huh. Yeah. Which was mostly fine, except for the fact that I wanted to download some podcast episodes and... and um, Overcast was going, oh, but you don't want to do big stuff over over cellular. I was like, but it's not really cellular. Oh. (laughs) So, yeah, anyway. So you then also mentioned me on Twitter. I got a lot of stuff packed to me on Twitter this week. Um, So this is a tweet from, I think he's a Dutch guy. Um, So pinhole cameras work by not having a lens, but putting all the light through like a little pinhole and it projects an image on the back of the pinhole camera. But that was actually discovered centuries ago in Italy and they actually used it to do paintings and stuff. And it was called a camera obscura, which is where we actually get the word camera for. And it literally means a dark room. Well, this guy had a hole in his curtain. So he was in a dark room and the hole in the curtain acted like a pinhole camera and the world outside was projected upside down on the wall behind his desk. And he took and a picture of it and posted it on Twitter. It's amazing detail. I mean, it looks like it, I mean, it looks like you're looking through the window, except it's yeah. upside down and, and reflected onto the wall. It is. Yeah. I, the color. I mean, it, it is a really, really effective, uh, effective Technique. thing. Yeah. 36,000 yeah. retweets of that one. Oh, it's amazing. It's great to see it for real, because I've known about it as a thing, right? So it's almost certain for Mir, when he did The Girl with the Pearl Earring, it's almost certain he did that because he has optical effects in his images, depth of field effects and stuff. Mm. So it's almost certain he was using a camera obscura. Who's, who's he? A Dutch painter painted the famous painting of The Girl with the Pearl Earring. Oh, I, th- I, th- I was just asking what his name was. Yes, Vermeer. Oh, Vermeer is his name. Okay. Yes. Um, and we're pretty sure, actually, that one of the reasons we start getting really accurate perspective fairly early on in Italy is because the Camera Obscura was discovered and people were literally just tracing over uh. stuff on the back of the wall. 
So anyway, it makes, it's makes me want to make that happen. You know, I guess you'd have to have a lot of light coming from yes. that window. It can't be, you know, an, a, an obscure angle. It's it'd have to be straight on. You need to have direct sunlight so that you have lots of light to work with and good curtains so that your eyes are really dark adapted. Oh, right, 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 right. Good point. Actually, yeah. taking the photograph of his wall must have been a little bit tricky because your camera wants to just brighten everything up, right? <laughs> it's true, actually. That may have taken a bit of work, yeah. And then lastly, actually, there's a theme in these last two. So I have a podcast recommendation as my tip. Um Photoactive is a podcast I quite enjoy. Um, Kirk McElhern is one of the two hosts. And I know him, I met, I sort of, I encountered Kirk McElhern in the virtual world because he writes for the Intego security blog. He's a security guy, but he's also a photographer. And he has a photography podcast with Jeff Carlson, who I've had on Let's Talk Photo a few times. Uh, Anyway, they're both Apple people as well as being photography people and security people. So you might see how I ended up overlapping with them. (laughs) Right, right. Anyway, they had an entire episode dedicated to learning how to use Apple's built-in camera. I do all of my photography with my iPhone. So I assumed I knew everything. Nope. I learned three new things. Wow. And it's like a 25-minute show. So have a listen. You will learn something. I don't know what it is, but there's something you don't know, and <laughs> you'll learn it. So there you go. That's fun. Even without a, uh, a deep dive, we managed to have lots of entertaining stories here. Uh, this was fun. Excellent. Well, I've run out of stuff, and uh, my tummy tells me it's about dinner time. So uh, I think what we should do is remind everyone they should stay patched so they stay secure and talk to you soon. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. I sure hope you were able to hear the show today. I guess if you're listening to this, you did. Anyway, I hope I get this working. Did you know you can email me at allison at podfeet.com anytime you like? If you've got a question, a suggestion, a dumb question, or maybe a review, even better, just send it on over to that address. You can also follow me on Twitter at Podfeet. If you want to join the fun in the conversation, like John and Dahl did this week, asking his dumb question, you could join our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack, where you can talk to me and all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You can support the show at podfeet.com slash Patreon or with a one-time donation at podfeet.com slash PayPal, like John Murray did this week. If you want to join in the fun of the live show like Dave Hamilton did this week, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.